Hello and welcome everyone to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. Well, we made it two whole weeks of a college football season before our first coaching change. And it was a big one. USC has finally dismissed Clay Helton after about three years on the hot seat. Bruce Feldman from Fox Sports and The Athletic joins the show to talk about the end of the Helton era and where USC could go next. It's a coaching search that has potential to engulf the entire college football season. After catching up with Bruce, Bud Elliott of 247 Sports and the Cover 3 podcast joins the show. We take the pulse of Florida State after an embarrassing loss to Jacksonville State. Then it's time to look at week three. Bud and I break down our five most interesting games of the weekend. We go deep into the schedule and also hit some of the ranked matchups like Auburn at Penn State and Alabama at Florida. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on appodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's NFL podcast. You can go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, anywhere you like to get your podcast to find us. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and rating. It helps college football fans find us and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me first this week on the podcast is Bruce Feldman from The Athletic and Fox. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me on short notice to talk about the news of the week. It is Tuesday. We are recording this on Tuesday morning-ish, late af- uh, early afternoon. And... Um, uh, but less than a little less than twenty four hours ago, Clay Helton was fired by USC. I, I, I I'm not a shock. I mean, uh, I, when I saw it pop into my email, it, you know, certainly it catches you a little off guard because you know that's just something that doesn't happen every Monday that a, a major program in every Monday in September that a major program fires its its coach. But after what happened Saturday, it did seem like this was very possible. Yeah, and remember, he's been on the hot seat for about three years. I mean, it's a staggering amount of time. You can go back to 2018, and recruiting really has suffered because of it. And honestly, the fan base has really never bought into Clay Helton. You know, at, at, I think most of the fan base, and actually many of the former players who do wield a little bit of influence around USC, they just felt like nice guy shouldn't be the head coach at USC. And so they kind of dismiss the success he had early on as, well, he got lucky with Sam Darnold, right? And I don't think that's fair to put it that way because he's the one who found Sam Darnold. And his staff has done a really good job finding some quarterbacks that maybe weren't as hyped up as some other guys. But the reality is he came into this year on the hot seat a couple of years ago, as it was explained to me by some people in the athletic department. Financially, it was not feasible for them to be able to get out from under the contracts their their former ADs had had lined up with him. And so they wrote it out. And as much as a lot of the fan base wanted Urban Meyer two years ago, 
from what I understand, Carol Folt, who was the new, relatively new president at the time at USC. Remember, when she took over USC, it was scandal central. And I'm not yeah. just talking about like in the athletic department. I'm talking about like in the university. Right. And right. I was told she did not want anything to do with Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer obviously has a lot of baggage, um, you know, when it, especially when it came from, uh, you know, his handling of the Zach Smith situation at Ohio State and some other things. And so she didn't want that. And I don't think they looked at it and said, just the timing's not right. Well, now I think they realized they got embarrassed on Saturday night. And that's what Mike Bone saw. You know, I, you know, from talking to people close to him, I know Sunday morning, it was only a matter of time. Do we do it right now or do we wait till two weeks from now after hardly any of the fans show up to see them host Oregon State? You know, because the fan base was done with them. And I think that's really what ripped the Band-Aid off now in mid-September as opposed to maybe four or five weeks from now. Right. You also build up the possibility that he wins a bunch of games and then it becomes a weirder and harder decision. Um, I know athletic directors will talk, you know, I've talked to a lot of athletic directors about the idea of firing midseason. And, you know, they also have to take into account like, okay, what is best for this team? What is best for these players? In other words, am I nuking the season? By by firing this guy, even though I don't think he, maybe he's a very good coach, but are my players going to bail on this? Uh, do I have a staff in place that I can entrust this team to maybe make the best out of this season? I mean, you have to have some consideration towards what's best for the players here. Uh, I understand there are there are there are big picture issues as far as what the program is going to be going forward. The one thing I wanted to say about Clay because this comes up a lot. Clay's a really nice guy. Clay's, and I didn't know Clay that well, but he absolutely comes across as a gentleman and a person who brought a little like dignity to a program that was lacking that for a few years. And you mentioned all the scandals. And I think there are a lot of fans and, and maybe even some people in our business who sort of roll their eyes at the idea, well, he's a nice guy, big deal. Like there's a lot of nice guys out there. That doesn't mean they should be coach of USC. But I ended up writing about that a couple of years back, as you said, when Fulth was inaugurated and there was all these – there was the, the Aunt Becky scandal, which we kind of make fun of, but it's super embarrassing. But they also had some more serious things as far as you know, doctors being – Sexual ac- assault. Being yeah. accused of sexual assault. So there was a lot of shit going on, frankly, at, um, at USC. And the fact that Clay was a good person – that's the reason why that's important to point out. Like, I don't think we're, any of us are trying to make him St. Clay, but him being a decent, respectable person helped, you know, I think bought him more time. I think it, at a time when there was so much tumult and undignified things going on at USC, you at least knew, you know, uh, we may have some issues on the field, but he's not going to embarrass us off the field. This program is not going to embarrass us off the, off the field all that much. So that's why I think that when the, we harp a lot on the well, Clay was a good guy. I think it's harped on because I do think it played into him being kept. Yeah, and I also think, and I've said this a bunch, you know, living out here, is I think sometimes people forget that when he took over, uh, you had to remember the recent hires they had. They had Lane Kiffin, and say what you want about Lane, but there was drama almost every day with Lane, Mm -hmm. and it was just kind of a, a little bit of a circus. Then they... Um, they had Ogeron who makes a run at the job. He doesn't get it. That gets messy in the locker room. There's a lot of fireworks there. 
then they hire Sark, and that was a debacle because of Sark's off-field issues. So one thing they got with Clay Helton, and it's not the only thing they got, but they got, you know, for lack of a better term, an adult and somebody who was stable. And it was, as you said, beyond, you know, as and some of these other things materialized later as we're talking about the university-wide scandal. But I just think in terms of the stability piece of it, you know, the Sark, uh, the Sark Lane Kiffin one two kind of had a lot of people reeling there. And so I, I think that was, you know, that factored into it. And then I think it became the economics. Look, you have, you had some, you had some ADs who were in over their head in that job. Uh, first Pat Hayden. And then obviously Lynn Swan was a disastrous hire with no experience. And I think that that clouded it because then they, they chased, I don't know what's the expression, chased bad money with bad money or however, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. they threw more money at the problem and that only created more problems yeah. and got them more tethered to this. Okay, so, uh, you know, we all sort of have our speculative lists uh, that are that are built on, you know, conversations with people within the industry. But as I sort of summed up in my quick analysis of it last night is, Hey man, here's some ideas, but really, if, unless your name is Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney, I think almost anybody's on the table here. <laughs> like, I, you know, again, maybe not Kirby Smart, maybe not you know Ryan Day, but just about anybody is going to be interested in U.S. is going to at least be interested in USC, especially considering all the investments that they have made. Now they're talking a big game, and they have backed up some of that talk with actions, as far as building up a recruiting department, spending a lot of money, showing the willingness to spend a fair amount of money on assistant coaches, the things that you do to make your job attractive to coaches who are looking at it. Whereas, again, a couple of years back, there was this idea that USC's athletic department, like, who wants to work for them? Like, you come in with these high expectations. They don't have ADs with any experience. Uh, You know, another reason why you keep Clay around is the idea of, okay, let's get our house in order. So when, if either Clay is a success and he makes it work. And if he doesn't, we will look good to, to, to candidates, right? So I think USC feels like we look good to candidates. Now you can come here and create the next Clemson, the next Alabama, the next Ohio state. You can build that here. That's what they're trying to project with all that said, you know, let's get into possible candidates with the idea that it really could be just about anybody. But let, let like, where do you start? Is there a wish list at USC? I think that the, the two guys to me that jump out the most, one is, and, and you and I have talked about this guy a lot, is James Franklin at Penn State. He's, he, he did an amazing job at Vanderbilt. He has done a terrific job at Penn State. I know he's from Pennsylvania. He's been there for now, quote, a long time, right? And he feels like he has the presence that could fit and and thrive in Los Angeles. And for the fans of Penn State, yes, you have great football tradition, but you know what? USC has way more talent around it in a two-hour drive than Penn State does. And it's the last I checked, there's nothing like Ohio State in the Pac-12 South. And that's always going to be an issue. And by the way, you know, then there's Michigan and it's, there are other programs with elite football history who are right in that same division. Right. So I think, and by the way, James Franklin's buyout, I wrote about this in in my column yesterday. It's $4 million. That's manageable for USC, especially considering what some of the other guys, you know, on the board are. Now the question is, 
is Carol Foltz comfortable with James Franklin and is James Franklin uh, comfortable moving cross country to Los Angeles? Yeah. Bringing his family there with two, um, with two relatively young daughters. Um, I, I don't think either of them is close to high school age yet, which would suggest no, to me. No. I mean, and we're talking very broadly. I don't know what James Pri- uh, Franklin's uh, family priorities are, but you start talking like you start assessing those things and think, well, usually these coaches become a little more uh, apprehensive about moving when their kids are at that high school age. But keep in mind, Ralph, um, and and. James Franklin's been relatively um, um, forthcoming with some of this. His family situation, because of his, his some of his, one of his daughter's health issues, yeah. um, because of the pandemic, they've had to do some juggling already in right. terms of like she lived how, away from you know, them. Like he lived yeah. away from his family last year. Yeah, so some of those family issues, I think, just from from that, I'm not saying it's going to be easier, but I, I think it's it's. We're in some some different times. That the other guy who I think USC really is, you know, would be foolish not to kick the tires on is in their own conference, and that's Mario Cristobal. You know, he's obviously coming off a huge win this weekend against Ohio State. He's had a lot of success recruiting Southern California. He's put together a really good staff. Um, four and one in the last five games he's had against top ten opponents. You know, like one thing that I know from talking to a lot of USC people is they have been really frustrated with the hire of Graham Harrell and the run the air raid offense at USC. And a lot of people who've been in that program as staffers I've talked to who felt like one of the biggest mistakes that Clay Helton made was kind of letting uh, Graham Harrell really kind of set the tempo for how they practice because of the air raid offense. And so there's a lot of, you know, old USC people who are like equate air raid football with not with, with being soft or not as physical as they want to be. And that's, this is USC with student body left and student body, right. Um, look, who's more physical on the West coast than the old offensive lineman from South Florida who coached offensive line for Nick Saban and then just bullied Ohio state. I mean, that's Mario Cristobal. Now, I mean, also keep in mind, Mario Cristobal, like, is such a uh, is so uh, passionate about recruiting. He knows that there's way more talent down here that he's close to in Southern California than he is up in Eugene, Oregon. I mean, that's a fact. Um, the other thing that's real is, yes, he's had a lot of success getting players out of Southern California. It's going to get a lot harder when the head coach at USC is not on the hot seat. Right. To do that. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I get it. You know, like I think Cristobal and the staff have done a really good job, but a lot of players have left uh, Southern California because Clay Helton's situation has been so tenuous for so long. Yeah. Like that, if James Franklin becomes the head coach at USC, it is going to be a lot harder for people to come into Southern California and recruit and pull out some of the best players. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. But it's going to get a lot harder, right? Well, so. well, it's it's the concept of why be the coach who is trying to convince kids not to go to USC, which Mario has done a great job of. Just go to USC; those kids want to go there anyway, right? <laughs> like, you know, their, their inclination generally is to go there, there anywhere. Like, yeah, yeah. Like a little story. So um, Jim Mora gets gets rolling at U- UCLA. He beats USC the first three years he's there, and I remember doing a signing day show. And we had him on, and they lost, I want to say head-to-head for, for top Southern California kids, 
five for five or something like that. And I asked him, like, what do you, you know, what do you make of it? What is it going to take? He goes, these kids grew up dreaming of playing US, playing at USC. You beat them three years in a row. That's not going to, that's not fixing it. You know, that's not what's in their heart. That's not how everybody around them. Yeah, UCLA has a great education and Chip Kelly's starting to get it going there. But to, to think that you're going to be able to beat Southern California for the top players in Southern California when they grew up and their families all are, you know, USC was the, the main thing to them. Mm. That's an uphill climb. It's not to say there won't be kids who will leave, but it's just that's the root of it. Look, in Cristobal's case, I know he has a good relationship with Rob Mullins, and I know he feels really strongly about where this program is in twenty going to be in 2022 and 2023. Um, but look, it's, I mean, all things being equal, which, which do you think has a big, bigger potential in the job? The, the pro, you know, the program up in, up in Eugene, Oregon, or the program in the backyard—that's won national titles, right? And, and only and only to be like devil's advocate on that, you know. I think if you're crystal ball, you also might look at yourself and think like, I got it, I got it working here. I'm in a good groove, and maybe my future for a guy who is, you know, grew up in in Miami, in the Miami area, maybe my future is ride this for a while while I have it going well, and then see. What happens with Nick at Alabama? What happens at Miami with Manny and and things like? In other words, like if if I'm thinking big picture for Mario, a, a a quick move to USC might make a certain amount of sense. But maybe I'm also thinking like, yeah, well, why go down there, rebuild it for a couple of years when I can like kick ass up here for a couple more years, and then we'll see what goes on in the southern part of the country. Yeah, I, I think of those two. I think Miami would be a more attractive option then for him to go or you know, I don't even know if if you know if Nick Saban's Nick Saban's gonna have a big role I assume in who's his successor and, and, and that's Saban's and that's six say. seven years from now at this point yeah. so yeah I mean it's um, I, that's probably not a great example of like a place that he would be thinking about okay I can do that relatively soon right Miami was is the place that clearly and is, it more is a volatile. special place to him his brother yeah. is, a, is a Miami-Dade police officer he's his family is entrenched there um, look, I, I mean, full disclosure, I went to college with Mario Cristobal in Miami. So like he had, I know the roots and the passion he has for the place. Um, we'll see. I mean, his buyout's $9 million. That's, that's not cheap. I think it drops to 6.5 million in the middle of January, but you'd have to assume USC is not going to wait that long to hire somebody. And I don't think two, you know, $2.5 million would would be a, a disqualifier for them. So again, I think it's a like I said, I think it's something that that USC would probably have to kick the tires on because he's the guy who's got it rolling, and he, like I know some people who are pretty influential at USC who are very intrigued by Mario Cristobal and what he has done there and how he has done it. So um, now is Carol Folt the president? You know, how does she feel about it? How does you know, Mike Bone and the people he he leans on feel about it. We'll see. And again, I mean, I just think that like for people who automatically assume, oh, Mario Cristobal wouldn't do this because you know he's done this and this and this. I I think you're probably underestimating the the appeal of of what USC could be. 
So one of the things that, again, one of the things I wrote yesterday, not necessarily looking out for a list of candidates, was just the, this idea that this search is about to just consume the college football season, right? This is going to be a weekly, almost daily churn of, you know, listen, it's they can't make any moves over the next couple of weeks, right? These coaches can't aren't going to leave their jobs midseason. But this thing is going to be an all-consuming um type of news story that sort of weaves its way through the season. And the reason why is because just about every coach who is leading a successful program is going to at some point be quote unquote linked to USC, which is, again, you know, Mario Cristobal looks like he's got a team that might make the playoff. And now the rest of the year, part of the story, sort of the, 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 the addendum to the Oregon story is, hmm, I wonder if USC is going to go after him. And it's going to be the same way at Cincinnati with Luke Fickle, who was hired at Cincinnati by Mike Bone, the AD at USC. Now, as, as I've been told, I, like I don't think they don't like each other, but like I've heard, that, I've heard that they're not like yeah. super chummy. Like this is not necessarily a situation where you go, oh, that he hired him at Cincinnati. Oh, so he'll he'll love to go work for him there. I, that's not what I'm gathering from people who I talk to. Um, that doesn't say it disqualifies Luke Fickle from being there, but it's not just that automatic. Like oh, they go a long way back. He will definitely do that. You know. So that's a, again another team with the possibility of this really high ceiling and as the season goes along what about Luke Fickle what about Matt Campbell if he turns it around um at uh, at, at Iowa State you know following the the loss to Iowa Iowa State has traditionally started slow and then they get into the Big 12 season and ramp it up so there's still a, a possibility he could have a really good season there the Fickle and Campbell pieces of this are super interesting because they're Midwestern guys they're Ohioans people seem to think that like they would like to stay in that region of the country and that's sort of where they're they're more comfortable coaching but this is USC and here I want to I want to before I go back to you Bruce I was listening to you and Stu on your podcast podcast uh, yesterday, actually, right when this news broke, uh, your Sunday podcast, when you guys were touching on this, and you and you hadn't used the term, this is a Monday through Friday problem at USC, right? The, the issues seem to be how they're practicing, organization, just, mm-hmm. you know, preparation is sort of the root of the problem at USC. Well, the one thing that I know Matt Campbell and guys like Fickle, like that seems to be their wheelhouse, Right. Development, preparation, organization, sort of getting a program together where it operates at a at about as, you know, neither neither of those schools are operating with elite talent, but prepare your teams in a way that they operate at sort of the max level from week to week, max effort, max efficiency, max technique and things along those lines. So I'm interested to see what the, you know, Campbell, Fickle like what kind of candidates they might be. And a lot of it has to do with like whether they're up for that kind of change of scenery. I, yeah. And I think what, and I agree with what you were saying, cause I've heard some of the same things about Luke Fickle's uh, relationship with, with Mike bone and not to say it's bad, but ex- exactly what you had said. What I think is, is also interesting on the Luke Fickle piece of this is yeah, I've always heard he is very Midwestern Ohio. Maybe if it's not Ohio State, if Notre Dame ever came open, you know, something like that, perhaps maybe even Penn State. But the thing is with him, he has six kids. I, from everything I've heard, it didn't sound like six six kids that he would like. 
he's dreaming of raising that family in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I don't, that doesn't quite line up with some of the things I'd heard before. I'm not saying he has that USC would have no chance of, of, of convincing him to come. Matt Campbell to me feels like that one would be, a. I think that would be a little more of an intriguing fit on his end. Um, you know, and I'm not saying he's he's going to jump out of Iowa State. And honestly, I think because they just lost to Iowa, and so much of this is creature in the moment. And I think I think USC would have to be idiots not to think he's a terrific coach. Mm-hmm. I mean, half the people in the NFL are very intrigued by him. But there is an element of of USC people are going. Well, he's never really landed any five stars. And I think they it's hard to get past. Well, you're in Ames, Iowa. That. It's not very easy to do. I mean, as good a coach as Kirk Ferentz is, they're almost never getting four-star guys either. And so I think for a, for a lot of people who are in that kind of pipeline at USC of, of you know, have some maybe a little bit of influence, they pay attention to that kind of stuff. Like, I don't think it's like the fact that Dante Williams was made the interim head coach. Mm. Dante Williams best gets credit for building some relationships with recruits and sparking, you know, sparking USC back on the recruiting trail. I don't think anybody was looking at Dante Williams as a guy who's going to be the interim head coach for a season, but that came up a lot on Sunday from what I understand. Yeah. Can, can, again, let, let, let's, let me hold you on that, on that point the Dante, because I thought that was fascinating too, because I think there was this um, assumption that Graham Harrell would I'm telling up. you, like this was one of the things that when I got into the Monday, when you referenced that thing I said on the podcast, the Monday through Friday yeah. thing, you talk to people who have either worked there or have worked there recently, and there's a lot of feeling, um, I don't know if you know, I'm using the, the word acquiesce in the right way, but but Clay kind of gave the keys to some extent. And yeah, let acquiesce, you, you'd, be, you'd be using that correctly. Yes, acquiesce. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like Graham kind of set the tempo, uh-huh. and that just, you know, like, not to do too much of a post-mortem on Clay Helton's situation, but I think there was a lot of elements of this where they kind of took away some of his responsibilities, both from the administration wise in terms of who, who was on his staff. And then I don't know how much he let, let Graham actually take over, but that is the, that is one of the things I heard a lot from, from people who've worked there was just that, and that they weren't so physical during the week. And so when it comes, when it came to that, I'm not at all surprised that they didn't, they didn't make Graham the interim head coach. I thought it would have been Todd Orlando because he's run defenses and mm-hmm. he's, you know, obviously Saturday night notwithstanding, but he did a, you know, he, he did a decent job there last year. And then. Am I reading uh, too much into it and in thinking that you make Dante Williams the interim head coach because he's to the. To save your recruiting. Well, this A, well, okay, to A, to save your recruiting and, because, and B, when you do hire a new guy, well, uh, you know, hey, listen, maybe, you know, I mean, could Dante Williams win. 10 games and all of a sudden become the head coach. Did you listen to, by the way, and I like, I didn't want to tweet this because I didn't want to overstate it, but I am going to. So they do this Trojan live thing. It's Jordan Moore, Sean Cody, former great D lineman, Max Brown. And then they have on Mike Bowen. I I saw a big chunk of it. I I didn't catch the very beginning of it, but I saw a big chunk of it. You might have missed the part where he said, he referenced something. Well, that coach may still be here. 
Like, I think he left enough wiggle room that if Dante Williams goes 11 and 1, I'm sorry, it would be 9 and 1 yeah. um, in the regular season, then, you know, I, I was fascinated on that piece of it. Well, um, well the other thing but, I, would, I would say, because I know, and, I, you know, this is, I don't want to short Dante Williams. I don't know him as a coach. I just know what he, you know, he, he's done a good job. They brought him in to sort of reinvigorate the recruiting and to deal and to, and to, and to work with the DBs. Um, but I do wonder if you think of him as he's not directly tied to Clay. A, maybe he, maybe he, 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 he earns this job. Maybe he wins this over. But B, by giving him this responsibility, maybe he ends up being one of the holdovers. Maybe we, we, we put him put in a position where the new guy, when we sit down with a new guy and say, listen, we would love you if we can find a spot for Dante. Dante, hey, we love the job you did here. Uh, I don't know. I may, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I'm just wondering if maybe you play that and put him in a position where he would be open-minded to staying because you value him. I'm sure he'd be open-minded to staying. He's a Southern California guy. That, that all makes sense. The question's going to be, do you, now, whoever you hire, if it's James Franklin, if it's Matt Campbell, are you saying, hey, you got to keep Dante Williams? Which is always yeah. awkward. Yeah. Which is which, which is super awkward, yeah. So, it's, it's not awkward if he goes eight and – if he goes seven and three, right? It, it's not that awkward. If he does a pretty good job, but not so much where you go, wow, we got to hire that guy. Well – Look, I know this for a fact. When Ed Ogeron started to get it rolling as the interim, there were some head coaches who were involved in that search who were like, this is going to be a problem. Because <laughs> when you get some cult of personality guy, and we know that's who that guy can be, you know, it's, it usually comes with guys who have reputations as great recruiters. Um, then all of a sudden it's like they're getting really comfortable in that office. And a lot of the players are – are loving him and then you have to pull that apart right um and you have to take over and there can be some rocky transition not to say it can't be managed but i know this one of the coaches involved in that process talked about that while it was going on this is going to get hard this is going to get way more complicated if he keeps winning mm-hmm and again, so again, I'm gonna, the theme of my story was again this idea that this is going to consume the season. If USC does well, it becomes intriguing because now all of a sudden you have an, maybe have an internal uh, candidate develop. As we're talking, you know, your colleague from the Athletic, Justin Williams, just tweeted that Luke Fickle was, of course, asked about USC and James Franklin's uh, news conference is coming up soon. And I just think the tentacles of this can is going are going to spread. The Matt Campbell thing was interesting because you're right. The, this idea of prisoner of the moment. What if if Iowa State only sort of goes seven and five? Now we know that that's pretty still a pretty good accomplishment for Iowa State to have five straight winning seasons but the shine kind of comes off Campbell and that allows Iowa State to maybe keep its coach whereas let's say P.J. Fleck happens to get it going this year and all of a sudden does his star rise or does his star sort of fall off you would think that USC shouldn't be thinking such so short term as far as how they're going to make this decision and that they have a broader picture and a bigger picture in mind of what they want as their coach and are not going to be influenced from week to week. But I, I kind of wonder if they it's will USC. be. A, it's this USC, is, right? Yeah, this place is the cat chasing the fan, f- flashy car. <laughs> I mean, I, that's always how USC has been. Now, I am skeptical of the, of the PJ. Fleck. If PJ Fleck goes on and wins the rest of his games, maybe different story this year. 
But when I've heard, I've seen people throw out PJ Fleck's name, and it's kind of perplexing a little bit to me. Look, I think he's done a nice job there, but he is 15 and 20 in Big Ten play. Yeah, I don't and quite get that like one either. Guys, it's also not like the guys he followed were like, were go like that was basically what they have been for the last yeah, seven yeah. or eight years. And I know there was a lot of, there was a lot of real ugly and mess that he inherited, but PJ has no connections to the West Coast. He has mm-hmm. no ties from from being out here. Another and Midwestern guy. There's a guy, bunch yeah. of people who are like influential USC people who look at PJ and they're not, they kind of feel like, and I think it's it's authentic, but they're really skeptical of just kind of the PJ persona and row the boat and some of that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like I go back to the when I heard that I'm like, he's 15 and 20. I don't think, yeah. You know, like that one, I don't really buy. I think, I mean, look, and if he goes on and and finishes 10 and 2, then, then, you know, maybe that'll change. But not from... I just, I just, I don't know. I'm skeptical of that and, one. And as you said, like you know, the the cat with the with the flashing light. Uh, you know, I, it, I wonder as this season evolves if there is a a new shiny toy that develops. Right? You know, uh, we talk about the guys like Billy Napier and Jamie Chadwell, Southern guys, probably looking at at the SEC for their next moves uh, or the ACC for their next moves. Um, Though Billy Napier, you know, coached at Arizona State before he ended up um, at the job he is in now, uh, he was also an Alabama assistant. But I, I get—I only bring those guys up to say, like, again, the 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 flashy shining light. Like, is there going to be a coach out there who's going to become the hot coach as the season goes on, and all of a sudden they get tied? This thing is just going to—this is going to wrap its tentacles around the football season in almost every way. And I can only imagine we're going to get to like November and. Teams are going to be doing well, and the USC search is going to start cranking up, and there's going to be this constant swirl of rumors and speculation and coaches who are in playoff races and conference title and division races having to answer questions about this. It's it's going to be wild. It has a chance to be really wild here. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I, I think that's exactly what it's going to be. I think it's going to be a circus, um, <laughs> you know, so... So buckle up, Ralph. Yeah, well, but the, and and really, that Mike Bone was hired to make it not right. I mean, I think that's the whole point of having an AD in there with some experience as an AD. I, I think the the goal is going to be to have someone there who can tamp at least some of that down that can make this thing come across somewhat professional. But of course, the other part of it is too is we will have coaches who. We'll use this for leverage for extensions. We will have yeah, all of a sudden Mike Gundy is going to be putting sunblock on. <laughs> talking about you know or whatever. It's one of those. I'm, yeah, I'm kidding. I don't think Mike Gundy is going to be coming here. But it's like that's how it, it feels like it always. Now it's a party because all of a sudden you get some some random person who's had success, but you're like that makes no sense from a fit standpoint. Mm-hmm. Why would that person leave? Yeah, and you'll have the coach who comes out and says, oh, I'm staying with my program, and all his fans will be able to say, oh, he turned down USC, when in reality, like behind the scenes, you find out like, yeah, maybe USC made a phone call. 
like maybe maybe they made yeah. a phone call or maybe they didn't even do that. Um, you know, you talk about like sort of like, you know, wild scenarios. I, I, Brian Kelly's name is absolutely going to get dragged into this at some point, especially I think if Notre Dame is a little iffy, like if they're good, like not uh, good, but maybe have some have have a couple of like sputters throughout the season, beat USC, but aren't as good as usual because, hey, listen. That's a tough job. He's got maybe the toughest job in the country. We've talked about this a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that he has been at that job for 12, 13 years is remarkable. So maybe he needs a change of scenery. And the point is, I can come up with something like this for a dozen guys. Bob Stoops, I'm sure. Hey, listen, he's in L.A. You, you're getting to see him on the set every week, right? So He's, he's get- actually not in L.A. He's like, they're on the road all the time. And it's not like when we, you know, for the, I don't know, five weeks of the season where they're not on the road. Then I'll be in LA for thirty six hours. Okay, right. So, well, but the, my point being that he's yeah. at least ha- he's at least making that trip every once in a while to LA. Uh, Bob living his best life, Stoops. Yeah, you know. So uh, again, they're all getting dragged into this. Do you think the last one I'll ask you, Bruce, is do you think USC will refrain from doing sort of the USC thing, which is? Uh, how's Jeff Fisher doing? How's Jack Del Rio doing? Uh, Jack Del doing? Rio. Yeah. I, I, somebody mentioned Jack Del Rio to me yesterday. Now, it wasn't somebody in the middle of the USC process, but I would not be surprised if that name comes up. I mm. wouldn't. I mean, and I'm not saying like it's going to like the, the name I heard from some NFL people I who are plugged in on that was like, what about Eric Bieniemy? You know, he's he's had connections out there. He'd love to go recruit for USC. And I was like, on a lot of levels, I that wouldn't shock me. But mm. at the same time, Eric Bieniemy um, has no head coaching experience. And by the way, Eric Bieniemy might be on a Super Bowl team. USC can't wait that long. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and that's it. Right, the timing of this is interesting too, because if you have a coach, if 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 Mario Cristobal ha- is in the playoff, like. That could influence your decision too, uh, because there's an early signing period now, and uh, you know, as we'll talk with Bud Elliott after you, uh, after I'm done here, you know, Bud's done some research about how the early signing period is throwing these some of these coaching hires into a mess because that first signing period is really is often really difficult, so you're almost starting behind the eight ball. There's so much stuff that is involved in this, and it's, and again, it's not even fall yet. It's not like we are still seven days away from fall. We are 11 weeks away from championship Saturday. And that's the span of USC's coaching search. Um, it should be fun, Bruce. And I know Bruce Feldman from Fox and the athletic, you will be all over it because a, you're very good at this from a national level. This is, this is definitely your thing. You are as plugged in as anyone, but you also know that USC program pretty well. Thank you, Ralph. It's always a pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure talking to you, Bruce. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. 
Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Joining me next on the podcast is Bud Elliott, the great Bud Elliott, a national recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports and CBS Sports. Uh, you can get him on the Cover 3 podcast, right, Bud? And the Knowles po- and the Knoll cast. I think you could also get you there, right, Bud? That's, that's right, Ralph. You nailed it, man. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, I always appreciate you coming on. Bud's great because he's got a great knowledge of like recruiting plus what's going on right now in these schools and that's not to knock anybody else you've got guys like me who you know sort of dip a toe in recruiting but you know more are more along the lines of what's going on right now and you got other people who know recruiting really well but maybe not as connected to sort of like the 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 season so to speak and more and more connected to the pipeline bud is great because he knows those both uh he's also got a good analytical mind and he also likes to bet a little bit so maybe we can squeeze a couple of uh, a couple of best bets out of bud this week too so again thanks a lot for doing this bud we're going to start with your roots here because for a long time you were sort of the Knowles guy. Uh, you still are certainly an expert on Florida State. The, we're going to look ahead mostly with you to this coming weekend, but I got to look back a little bit. What happened last week with Florida State was disastrous. <laughs> and can you give me a sense of sort of a, a temperature of the fan base? I think there was a little more recognition after Taggart was was pushed out after two years that, okay, we're going to have to have a little more patience with the next guy. But uh, patience runs out super fast when you have losses like that. It, it certainly does. I think the fans are, are pretty angry, uh, and understandably so. They, they should be. Uh, I think most fans who are you know people who follow Nolcast, who read Nolcast two four seven, you know who who follow the program closely, un- understood this year was going to be difficult, right? We said, hey, I, I think they'll win you know five, maybe six games, and this is a long term rebuild. Any time that, in my opinion, that you make a coach firing after only two years in the early signing period era, your roster is basically screwed for a little bit, and uh, and that, that's indeed kind of what they have going on there. They took a whole bunch of transfers to try to slap a Band-Aid on it and to get to some sort of respectable record, you know, like not 2-10, and 3-9 uh, and nine this year, just to overcome some of the attrition issues they've had. And we'll see how that ends up working. Obviously, early returns here, uh, not great. But, look, this game largely is on, on some coaching decisions. And last week, I, I praised Mike Norvell for making the right uh, aggressive decisions against Notre Dame, even though they didn't work out. Uh, but here... Uh, specifically, the last play of the game, uh, they just there's a couple things like they there's six seconds left. Jacksonville State is trailing by three. They're on their own 41s. So they have 59 yards to go for a touchdown. Uh, they probably need to throw what a 35 yard pass in very quick fashion. Get down, get the timeout called uh, to have a shot at a reasonable field goal, like a 45 yarder type thing. Uh, so kind of unlikely they would do that. And, and quite simply, the staff either literally called cover one robber, which is incomprehensible to me, and somebody probably should be fired legitimately if you made that call in that situation. Because what are you trying to rob at 10 yards depth with your other safety? Why not have both safeties back? Or they signaled in the wrong defense. Because I've seen the All-22 film, the defense is playing cover one there. Like, that's not an appropriate defense to play. Like, nobody would argue that it is. Even if you played it well all game, it's just a, a miss. It's sort of a miscalculation of the risk reward there uh, mm-hmm. for playing that defense, and that's what they played. 
and didn't play it all that well on that snap, obviously. And um, and the guy for Jacksonville State made a throw and a catch and, and juked out two guys and scored at the end. And that um, that's on coaching, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's more things to blame on coaching in this game. Uh, I've been pretty impressed with Mike Norvell's coaching overall, to be honest. Uh, even though the record is, is poor so far, I think the roster is, is bad. Uh, but not in this game. They they treated this almost like a like a scrimmage where they wanted to try a bunch of different things and put different uh, different elements on tape and basically kind of try out some stuff. And ultimately, Ralph, when they when they got through with with their script and all their other stuff they were trying to do, uh, I think they flipped the switch and the light didn't come on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they said, "Oh, wait a second! Like maybe we aren't quite as good as we think we are here, even though we played pretty well against Notre Dame." Um, but yeah, like that that defense there is. Uh, that's just not yeah. appropriate to call, and I—I I mean, I think somebody will lose their job over it at the end of the season. So, uh, before I wrap up, that two things on because I, you know, like a lot of people, I didn't watch this game. Now I was actually at a game, but you know, after the game, that game's over, you start flipping on to other things and trying to gather some information about what is going on and what what you might have missed. I only saw that play. <laughs> Basically, I only saw that play. So as much as Clearly, that play was a unforgivable mistake, right? I mean, just like you, you can't, you can't do what they did. The fact that they got in this with Jacksonville State, yeah, I think is also sort of reflective. You mentioned this a little bit, like you know, they sort of had a plan, and then all of a sudden, that plan didn't work out very well, and they didn't necessarily have counter punches, and maybe thought that they were a little better. But you know, the fact that they they found themselves in a three point game in seventeen points against Jacksonville State with you know with seven seconds left on the clock, it was damning too, as far as I was concerned. Now again, that might be more reflective of the roster than the coaching, but you would think. Even in year two, you would be moving past this a little bit to where, oh my God, you're in a death struggle with Jacksonville State, a team that a week ago got blown out by UAB. So this is a pretty good FCS program, but not necessarily, you know, I mean, there are elite FCS programs. This is not necessarily one of them, at least not this year. Uh, Ralph, I thought the same thing going into the game. I, I We did our preview episode. I said, guys, I really don't know what to expect here. Jacksonville State's usually a fairly good FCS team, but they just... I think they had 86 yards passing on 34 attempts against UAB, which is hard to do, right, if you throw the ball 34 times. Uh, they looked terrible against UAB. Like I, I know you don't want to talk Jackson State a whole lot, but like Jacksonville State did play better. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, the, the defensive play was the biggest you know, in-game issue in this game. But the play of the offense for FSU uh, was poor. They, they tried to use McKenzie Milton a lot more in this game rather than Jordan Travis. Uh, I got a lot of blowback last week following, following the, the Notre Dame game because I said, look, I don't know. I think McKenzie Milton might be damaged goods. He, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of arm strength. does get the ball out quickly. But I don't know that this team is set up to be a quality passing team. I think they need to continue to use Jordan Travis and run the football with the quarterback. Um, the receivers and offensive line are, are really not where they need to be to be a you know high-frequency passing efficient offense. And... They really struggle with that on Saturday, so we'll, we'll see where they go from there. But I, I think they didn't take this thing seriously enough, right? And didn't they weren't able to flip that switch, and, and clearly they miscalculated what they have. Last thing on Florida State, this team is dealing with essentially two like the the the, the players on this team 
or this team is constructed from at least two recruiting classes that were torpedoed by coaching changes, right? As you said, in the early signing period era, if you have a coaching change, that class is is going to be at the very least hindered, if not just bad, right? So the, the Jimbo change torpedoed one class, and the Taggart change torpedoed another class over just about a, you know, what, a three or four year period. Um, it, I mean, am I oversimplifying that? Um, is it is it just that they've had these two bad classes now? Um, and and now we're looking at a situation where Norvell maybe has a chance to have a pretty good class this year. But is it just like the core of this team is 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 made up of two sort of shot classes? Uh, essentially, yeah. Um, you know, their their best uh, players are transfers who they just took in this last class. Right, right. With the um, as you said, with the idea of like we need to build a bridge here because if we're right. going to keep this decent recruiting class that we're building on, we have to show them something. Exactly. Um, Let's see here. So I think uh, ten of the top thirteen players that they signed in twenty eighteen are no longer on the roster. Mm. You know that those are guys who you would expect to be your seniors now, and only one of those dudes went pro. So that means the other nine transferred out or dismissed, etc. Uh, Dante Lucas was, uh, I guess, the word they're going to use is, is quit yesterday. You know, kind of a troubled offensive guard uh, who they've had. Uh, in their starting lineup at times. Um, there's a couple spots in this team where they're still trying to... I think they're still trying to win games, but if things go south, they will, I think, commit more to culture. Right? There's certain guys who are just talented-wise, they have to keep playing them in order to give them a shot to actually win games. But behind the scenes, I think that they're pretty quickly growing tired of some of the antics by some of the upperclassmen. And if it goes really south, I think Norvell will likely just clean house on some of the vet, some of the vets who were there on the roster Um you know, when he got there and just kind of ride it out. The one saving grace for them recruiting wise, and I don't know that they're going to hold on to all these kids they have, but they have some pretty good long-term relationships here. They have some legacies and they've been on these kids for a while. And most of these kids are either in state or very nearby from Georgia. And to me, that's a fairly important factor compared to what you had when, uh, when Taggart had a really nice class entering the the 2018 season which fell apart because most of those kids who were making up the, the high-level mm-hmm. players in that mm-hmm. Taggart class were from out of state, right? Sam Howell was from North Carolina, Charles Cross was from Mississippi, and and on and on. Um, guys, you didn't really have much of a connection to you other than, than the hype at the time. I also think the staff, for all, for all I just ripped them on, and I think they deserve to be ripped, uh, they have not sold anything to these recruits as far as how good they're going to be this year. I think they're selling playing time. I think it's, hey, watch your position. You may see some proof of concept of what we want to do, but you're also going to see how quickly you can come in here and play, which is kind of the nice way of saying, hey, these guys at your position are not very good right now. Right, 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 right. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's an. We'll interesting, see. I'm, honestly, I, I, I feel like if, if and when it does turn back around, it will be an interesting book. The, 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 the fall of this program so rapidly has been pretty stark. And again, like a lot of great programs go through this stuff, um, but they are only a few. I mean, they're less than ten years removed from a national championship, and that's what makes this. Uh, uh, feel so sudden, and of course, again, like the the constant, uh, the the multiple changes has done nothing but set them back even farther. 
Um, it's a cautionary tale, though, if you're an athletic director out there at another program, right? Like, so we've seen Nebraska and Tennessee flip coaches fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. But I think if you do that in the ESP era, uh, it's problematic. And people say, hey, you know, the transfer portal is a way to fix that. I'm not so sure, Ralph. I, I think the transfer portal you can use as a Band-Aid in some cases. But uh, what we're seeing now repeatedly, and I'm, I'm working on some research on this, is the attrition rates for that first class you sign since the early signing period has, has you know, become a thing. Mm-hmm. They're terrible. Mm. Like your, your attrition rates are through the roof. I think in many cases the the reason you're getting some of these higher rated players is because they're maybe not a good reason you're getting them right. Mm, like maybe right. they have some character concerns that right, the programs right. that have been on them for you know for months or years know about and are deciding to pass, and all of a sudden they're available that close to, to signing day to sign with you. Uh, even the programs that that hired new coaches in that first year of the of the early signing era who are doing well. Even those programs are seeing crazy attrition rates from that first class, and we're seeing the same thing with with the new new group of 2019 hires. The only coach so far that's kind of kept his first, you know, three week recruiting class together is Chip Kelly, and he's like off the chart compared to everybody else. It's weird. Yeah, and of course that's one of the right. If you look back at that that year of the high that year of hires, which is gonna which honestly I could you could write a book and and maybe I will <laughs> on that Chip Kelly. Um, Scott Frost, Willie Taggart year uh, cycle of hires. Mullen Jimbo, yeah. Mullen Jimbo. Um, it, it's it was a it was a fascinating year, and uh, yeah, and it turns and it turns out, you know, as you said, Chip was the one who kept the class together and actually brought one in that didn't that didn't fall apart. And a few years later, with a little patience, all of a sudden, Chip's got a pretty good team. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily a, a championship contending team, but that's a pretty good Pac-12 team. And um, so, yeah, some again, some oh, as I said. Bud connects the the recruiting to the here and now just about as well as anyone. So I, I appreciate that little insight there. So now let's talk. Let's talk preview. Let's talk preview and uh, what which should be a pretty interesting week to week three of games. So uh, just for the listeners, so a couple of weeks back uh, for the opening weekend, I did a little game with my friend Paul Meyerberg where we came on and he ranked his five most interesting games of the week. And that went pretty well. It was a pretty a nice way of previewing the week. And then last week, I kind of got away from that because there was some news with Max Olson and we sort of did more of a mishmashy preview. But, you know, I kind of thought about it. I'm like, I kind of like that, like five most interesting thing. And I'm mostly going to lay it on Bud here. I'll, I'll implement some of my own, but we, I don't want to talk about the same game twice. But the way we're going to do this is it doesn't have to necessarily be the best games of the week. It doesn't necessarily have to be the games with the ranked teams. Just what are your five most intriguing games of the week? You can I would prefer if you have them in an order, but if you don't, that's okay too. So let's just go with your five most intriguing games of the week, and we'll start with what would nominally be number five. Okay, so we, we, we want to go from sort of the fifth most intriguing to, to yeah, the exactly. most intriguing. Exactly. Go go five to one, right. I, I, I think this is a really important game. Uh, it's It happens on Friday night, actually. I, I'm going to go to Champaign, Illinois. Okay. Uh, Brandon, Brandon Peters may be back for the Illini, the quarterback who got knocked out in that opening game. Yeah, uh, Ma- Maryland, kind of, yeah Maryland at Illinois, by the way. Excuse me, yes. Yeah. Uh, Maryland at, at Illinois. Uh, Maryland got the win over West Virginia in week one. They actually played some defense, which is uh, an, an improvement for them. And you know, Ralph, uh, if Maryland wins this game, they can go bowling. This is sort of one of those games that they need to get if they want to get uh, to six or seven wins. The offense has been 
fairly explosive with 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 uh, uh, Talia uh, Tagovailoa, and for Illinois, like is what we saw in Week One a mirage? Because the last two weeks they've they've not played very well. Uh, this is kind of way off the radar, but for me it's interesting because I think Maryland, if they're going to take the recruiting hype of Mike Loxley and turn it into proof of concept, this is one of those ones you have to give because at a certain point on the recruiting trail you have to start selling proof of concept as opposed to just vision. Oh, see, I like that one, but again, I, and I wanted, I was hoping you'd go a little bit off the radar here too, because I am, I, I, I liked Maryland last week against West Virginia, though cautiously. It's, or obviously it's early in the season. What was that week one against West Virginia? Week one against West Virginia. It's early in the season. So you're still kind of getting a feel of what these teams are. Um, again, really liked what I saw out of Maryland. And I kind of wonder, you know, listen, they're not going to win the East, but there's a lot of question marks in the Big Ten East right now. So is Maryland a team that could take advantage of some of those question marks and maybe win, as you said, six, you know, maybe even squeeze out seven games? Or are they, you know, just, well, you know, they'll beat Rutgers and we'll see what happens against maybe Indiana and who's their crossover? Well, it's Illinois. But you're right. I think this is a sort of if you are serious about being something that is viable in the East, again, not necessarily to win it, but to maybe beat one of the big boys. Um, this is a game you got to win, right? If you lose this game, then we're not taking you seriously at all. Exactly right. All right. So, uh, are we going back and forth here? Or you want just just my five? Um, we'll go. Let's go back and forth here, since you went off the radar here. So my my fifth one was I'm going to go with UVA at North Carolina, and it's similar to what you just brought up with Maryland. I'm interested to see exactly what UVA is after they blew the doors off of Illinois. And mostly I want to see if like North Carolina, if that first week was just, was just a fluke, frankly, uh, that, that could be, that could be one of those games where we look back and go, again, I don't know if I was all in on the hype with North Carolina quite as much as other people. They were top 10 to start the season in the AP poll. I was thinking probably more like mid teen sounded about right for me. Um, so I, I want to see if, Mer- if if North Carolina has that team in them that they were sort of hyped up to be. And I think if you are that team, you you take care of business at home against Virginia. And again, like you know, Brent, uh, you know, Brent Armstrong has played really well for Virginia, and that guy might be a guy who's flying under the under the radar as far as far as like the quality quarterbacks in the ACC. I, I think totally agree. I think that's that's a really good pick. Um, my note on Virginia on my betting sheet is UVA can score. Like I think this offense is is pretty legit. Dude, where did I that come say, from? Like I was, I'm surprised. <laughs> I just, I, and again, it's a, a yeah. lot of it's about Armstrong. But I was, you know, it also, I think it also shows that Broncos a pretty good coach. They they pass protect fairly well. Uh, they they seem to trust their guys to win one on one balls, which to me is fascinating because obviously I think UNC uh, does have one of the best set of cornerbacks in the ACC. So that we're going to get some really nice uh, opportunities to see some guys battling this weekend in the ACC on some of those jump balls. All right, number four for you. Uh, let's go to Boise. All right. O- Oklahoma State last weekend didn't look very good again. They have some receiver injuries, but uh, I don't know if Spencer Sanders is ever going to turn the corner mm. for the Cowboys. Yeah. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but the, they, they were outgained, I think, like 7.5 to 5.5 on a per-play basis by Tulsa. Uh, game was in Stillwater. I, Ralph, uh, Boise can beat them. Yeah. Yeah. And Boise, um, 
didn't play poorly against UCF, clearly ran out of gas against UCF, but but certainly did not play poorly, had a weird game last week where it had all these explosive plays and turnovers and ended up get, you know beating UTEP by a thousand. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm th- that's another good one. I'm very curious to see what exactly Oklahoma State is and you know if, if, if not Spencer Sanders, who it's uh, Ellingworth, I think is, is the kid behind him, right? Oh Shane Ellingworth, yep. yeah. so you know who, who, who played a little bit last year, but I don't know if I don't know if they think of him as like, okay, here's our next guy. And a very different style of player, I'll note. Totally. Uh, Sand- Sanders pretty mobile, right? Uh, Illingworth is uh, much more of a statue. Big arm kid, uh, kind of classic drop back passer from California. Yeah, so and that I think that one should give you a pretty good idea of what Oklahoma State might be in the Big Twelve, right? I think that's a if you're if you're wondering how does this Big Twelve thing sort out? Well, Texas maybe not is 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 not really a contender, and boy, Iowa State didn't look all that great coming out of the shoot, though they tend to start the season slowly, and we know Oklahoma is going to be really good. Who challenges Oklahoma? Well, if Oklahoma State's got any chance of of, be, of being of making any noise in that conference, you'd think that they need to get something get some answers against Boise State. So my number four is one of the marquee games of the week and it's Alabama against at Florida. You know, frankly, I don't know, man. Like like I don't I don't have high hopes here for Florida keeping it close, but there are so few spots when we'll actually get to see Alabama possibly maybe outside shot be tested. I'm super interested to see if Anthony Richards is healthy and can play. Andy Richardson is healthy and can play um, against Alabama and what Dan Mullen wants to do with that quarterback spot. You're, you're down in Florida. I know, you know, the Gators, if I, you know, is there a path here for them? Like, no, I wouldn't say if there's a path to victory, but like, what do you find interesting about this game from a Gator standpoint? Yeah, so first of all, I do think that Richardson will be the Gator starter by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. I, I think he his ceiling is much higher than the ceiling of Emory Jones. I believe that Jones is playing because he uh, operates the offense better overall right now. But the people I talk to, they know. Right, Richardson, the ceiling is much higher. Eventually, he's going to be the guy that they're really excited about. I, I, I'm confident on that. I would put money on that. Something I did put money on in the preseason was Florida plus 14 and a half. <laughs> Okay. And uh, ultimately, that is not uh, that's not going to work out for me here because the line's already up to like fifteen or sixteen. So, uh, Bama looked great in week one. They did not look quite as well uh, in week two. I'm kind of curious. Did do you think Saban had them run a bunch of stuff that he knew they that they didn't practice or rep all that well to to make sure he can yell at them? You know, and, and kind of use that game to work on stuff that they need to get better at. Well, I mean, he listen. He is never tougher than that type of spot. Coming off of a huge win, going into a game. You know, in this case, it happened to be Mercer, but it could have been. You know, you know, New Mexico State, right, or or something else. So that is always a spot where he is going to look to put pressure on his team because he understands that there won't be any sort of pressure from the opponent. Um, so, so, and so you I could call plays that you know that your team does not run well in practice. So yeah, that you can I, yell at them after the game. Right? I, I like, could, hey, you guys think you're so good. I like How that theory. This? Yeah, I li- I yeah. do like that theory, and I also say, listen, it's so easy to fall in love with Alabama so quickly because you know that they are loaded. You know that they are going to be good. So, you know, are there first game hostile environment for a guy like Bryce Young? 
does he show like, oh, okay, like there's still a little bit of freshman in there, right? There's still a little bit of like, oh, okay, he needs to calm down. Like you're just looking for the smallest cracks here for, you know, in, in the armor. And this is a place if you're going to spot them, if there's going to be some flaws for Alabama, it's going to come in Gainesville against a, a, an SEC, a high-level SEC team that you know has at least some dudes who can match up. Right. So I, I think the key here um, in this game is that last year, if Dan Mullen schemed one-on-one opportunities for Kadarius Tony and Kyle Pitts, that was advantage Gators, right? Because one-on-one, those guys were going to win against pretty much any defender in the country. Yeah. I don't this know if year, that's Florida, there. Yeah. If Florida schemes one-on-ones, they lose. Yeah. They need to scheme one-on-nuns. Mm-hmm. Basically, they need to create coverage busts from Alabama. Because I think Alabama's secondary is much better than Florida's skill talent this year, they don't have anybody on that offense, at least for what I've seen so far. Uh, maybe that'll maybe that'll change. Maybe somebody will improve, but I don't think they have anybody on that offense who they say, "Yeah, we love if we get this guy one on one." So Mullen has to do an even better job this year than he did last year. And I thought last year he did a nice job scheming Alabama in that game, uh, but he has to do an even better job of trying to create kind of one on none coverage bust uh, type things. Defensively, I believe Florida feels pretty pretty dang good about its defensive line. Uh, they feel like they hit on some of those transfers that they took in the portal uh, to bolster their depth. I think they like their pass rush. Uh, on the back end, I'm skeptical. Right? They lost Jaden Hill in the preseason uh, to the ACL. They still have uh, Kyrie Elam, who's a stud, but Bama's got multiple guys you got to cover. Does Florida have enough cover guys on the back end here? I, I don't know. All right, so that's that was my number four. Let's go to your number three, bud. Okay, so... Uh, Auburn Penn State is going to be my number three. Okay. Maybe it's a little that is little on down that is list. on my list too. Uh, but okay. let, let, I'll let you be the uh, I'll let you jump like, on that. We, we can we can skip it if you want to go a little more down ballot. Let's no do, no uh, no, that's okay. We'll that's a, no. I, I actually uh, let let's get into that one because I okay. think that is maybe the most interesting in some ways. I think I might have had that one or two on my list, but I'm fine. I want to break that one down with you because I think it is maybe the most interesting game of the week because I you know as well as Auburn has played, their competition has been probably the weakest of any top twenty five team. Now, there's something to be said for putting 60 up against your weak competition, especially when you have a new coach and you think you might be breaking in some new schemes and, you know, the the sort of the normal growth process of like, hey, there's a new guy here um, playing as efficiently as Auburn has, even against weak competition, I think tells you a little something. But this obviously is a completely different animal. And again, when we're trying to sort out what is up in the rest of the non-Alabama SEC West, where do we put Auburn? Well, I think maybe we'll have a little better idea of where that lies this week after they go to Happy Valley. So my, my main question here, right, I, when I saw Auburn play Akron, uh, I said, wow, like Auburn's offense looks pretty good. But then I saw Temple with a backup quarterback last weekend <laughs> go to Akron and drop eight yards of play on those guys. Yeah. I think the thing here is that Auburn's offense may be a little more buttoned up than it was last year, but Akron's defense is horrendous. Uh, like Temple had, what, two yards of play, I think, maybe three against Rutgers in week one, and then all of a sudden they're magically cured with a backup QB because yeah. their starter got hurt. I, I think Temple uh, is really, really bad this year, too. Yeah. I, like, I think and that's a, that's a program Akron. heading towards a coaching change. And, I, I mean, you know, listen, I, I'm not looking to fire anyone, but I just feel like this is a – probably set up to be a pretty poor year. So, right, if all of a sudden you come in in Akron and you're putting 42 on, something tells me something's up there. <laughs> I, I don't know how good Auburn's offense actually is. Um, 
the flip side of this game, I, I think Penn State's defense is probably pretty good. Um, I think they can largely run with Auburn. Auburn's going to try to run the ball with Tank Bigsby. Most likely, Penn State will try to take that away, and we'll see see how well Auburn is able to throw the football uh, on Penn State. On the flip side, uh, I had a co- I had a coach on Penn State tell me basically like he really respected Kirk Soraka, the, the offensive coordinator who uh, yeah who they hired there last year and, went one and out one and out right yeah, but he basically said it was very tough to install that during a COVID year. Right, I, I don't think Penn State was one of those schools that was hosting secret practices. I think they took the COVID regulations pretty seriously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he said, look, it was hard for us to install that. And the other issue was that's not a tempo offense, and our kids at Penn State are used to going fast. And ultimately, we wanted to get back to playing tempo, to playing high energy. And I think they got that in Mike Yurcich. They played fast as heck against Wisconsin whenever they got a first down. But Auburn can run with Penn State on the back end. I don't like this Auburn team all that much, but their linebackers and and, and their defensive backs, mm-hmm. those guys can run. They still have a lot of dues in the back seven, in my opinion, who will get drafted or who will make an NFL roster uh, type player. So we'll have to see how consistent Penn State can be because I, I don't know how many just wide open shots they're going to create, which against Wisconsin, they did create those wide open shots. Just Clifford uh, kind of missed them, you know, a decent number of times. So. Uh, that's a fascinating matchup to me. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I find it to be again, it's it's the primetime game. It's a whiteout at Penn State. It's two got two quarterbacks who have been sort of much maligned by their uh, their own fan bases. I think uh, you know Clifford's had a little more success, I think, than Bo Nix, who uh, hasn't. Who, who for you know two years as a starter doesn't seem to have made a ton of progress. Uh, I, I I always kid around that Bo Nix looks like an, a 1997 SEC quarterback, right? Like oh he's got some good athleticism, makes a couple of decent throws, like you know not particularly efficient. But that was that was that those were that was the rage in 1997 in the SEC. Like he, he like the precision is just not quite there. But who knows? Again, maybe this is the year he takes a step forward. But you're not going to know that through Akron and Alabama State. So my number three is Michigan State at Miami. Mostly because I am really interested to see what's up here with Michigan State. Uh, They have put up a lot of points in the first couple of weeks of the season. Now, Northwestern, I thought, was going to be heading for a down year. But nonetheless, Northwestern generally plays pretty good defense. And they lit up Northwestern. Last week was was an easier assignment for Michigan State. So I'm not necessarily going to take too much from that. But, you know, I, I thought Michigan State was heading for a little bit, was, was almost like year zero last year. Okay, this is year one. Probably still going to be a lot of growing pains. Uh, Mel Tucker did a thing, did, did similar to what Mike Norvell did, brought in a ton of transfers. Seemed like that was just, okay, this is going to be a bridge until I get my own guys in here. Um, the difference is with Michigan State as opposed to Florida State. You know, Michigan State has a little more leeway. Florida State needs to show some progress. So I, I kind of just figured, okay, Michigan State this year, it's a growing pains year. We'll see what happens. That still could be the case. But again, I feel like we'll learn a lot more against Miami because, listen, I don't think Miami is great, but I do think they are pretty good. And if this is an even matchup, to me, that says a lot about Michigan State uh, and maybe even to a certain degree about what the ceiling is for Miami. Ralph, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I jumped all over Michigan State in the preseason. I, I'm, I'm bullish on this coaching staff and on this program in general. Uh, I thought Mel Tucker showed real growth during the season last year. First two games last year, he was like 
stodgy defensive coordinator. We're going to run the ball every down type thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, really? <laughs> and then they started changing and they started throwing the ball in first down and they started implementing like more efficient practices on offense. And you know that his team is going to play pretty good defense relative to it, to its talent level. You know, I, I took Michigan State over four and a half in their win total. I think they're going to make a bowl. Uh, you know, I, I, I took Northwestern under first quarter, first half and, and game <laughs> team total. Uh, and also took Michigan State on the alternate line for the upset because I just thought Northwestern was going to look like they did in 2019, right? I, like yeah. I think the bottom's going to fall out there. But how much of that first game was about Michigan State and how much was about Northwestern? Uh, again, I, I like Michigan State this weekend plus the seven and a half when it opened up, and you know I did the Cover Three podcast with, with the live stream on the the opening lines on Sunday and popped that. But now it's down to five which implies a lot of people think this is going to be a game. And I, I do think it'll be a game. With Miami, there's some injury stuff to watch here. So Keontre Smith was maybe their best defensive player against Alabama uh, and had had a couple tackles last week, and now he's going to be out for an extended period of time, their, their linebacker. I want to see how Miami's defense plays in this. They, they have not looked quite as good as they did last year. And Miami's... They're doing some different stuff on offense this year. And it, so far, it has had kind of mixed effectiveness, right? Do they get back to doing what worked for them last year? Can they actually run the ball on Michigan State and throw their play-action game off that? We'll have to see. But uh, so far, I, I, I like Michigan State. I, I think that's a good football team. I didn't have a, a lot of chance. Yeah, and, and I, I admit, like I, I'm very close to if, – if Michigan State plays well this weekend, I will completely admit being wrong on Michigan State uh, for this year. You – are, are on that bandwagon. Uh, Andy Staples is on that bandwagon. I had gone again, like uh, had this conversation with Andy and was like, I, like, why are you so into Michigan State this year? I was super skeptical coming in. I'm already feeling like I'm going to be wrong about that one. Um, and this game will probably prove that right or will probably be the proof of concept on that, whether I will, whether I have any shot of being right on Michigan State, because I would have taken the under, frankly, on Michigan State coming into this year. Um, the other thing on that is, Mel Tucker had them over a barrel in that contract negotiation because of when that you know, yes, when that coaching yes, change went down. Yeah. And he got a ton of staff hired. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, look, I want, you know, X number of recruiting assistants, I want X number of analysts. And they basically said, Okay, we're gonna spend this Big Ten network money. Like they have a legitimate you know, Georgia, Bama, that type of setup there at Michigan State, from what I understand. Maybe not quite to that level, but it's much like they're not small time there. They are really spending the money to have a bunch of coaches and people in place to help them out. So, but see, my thought was it, it wouldn't come to fruition so quickly because I even thought last year was a little bit of fool's gold. I, I mean, they, they beat Michigan, but Michigan was kind of a mess. They beat Northwestern, but Northwestern was a smoke and mirrors team anyway. So I, I almost thought like even the, the modicum of success that they had last year was a little bit of a, uh, a mirage. This would be the year where they would, okay, now we're retrenching. We're putting our things in place because we started so late last year and the, we had the pandemic just throw out last year. This is our year one. And now we're going to start to build up this program. But again, you know, everything points to the fact that that was absolutely wrong and that you're right. The spending, the, the staff being put in place, the engine is running uh, pretty hot already there at Michigan State. And uh, as I said, I'm just really not, not to mention, not, not, no, as, as is often the case, right? 
college football fans, we love these matchups with these interesting brands that don't play each other very often. So you just simply see Michigan State at Miami, and that looks interesting to me. So that was my number three, uh, and we got went through your number. What's number two for you? Uh, so number two for me, this is really kind of off the board. Uh, I'm interested in Minnesota, Colorado. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. This again. This is why I, I knew you would be you would deliver on this uh, on this segment here, Bud, because I knew you would go a little deep. So Minnesota, Colorado. Uh, last week, Minnesota was actually uh, outgained by Miami of Ohio, but in sort of a weird way. So Minnesota jumped out to a good lead, and I think they kind of just packed it in too early, uh, and then Miami of Ohio kind of blitzed them all through the third quarter and made that uh, made that a much closer game than Minnesota wanted him to. Uh, and then Colorado last week put up a good fight against A&M when, uh, when Haynes King went out for the Aggies. P.J. Flex, like, getting mentioned in the, the USC coaching search, mm. but they they weren't good last year. No. And so far they put up a – they were very game against Ohio State. I, I want to see what direction that program's going in. Like, like I don't know that, that he would actually get hired at USC, but I know he's on some uh, – the, the hot boards and stuff like that early on. This is a game if Minnesota is going to take a step forward, they, they need to go ahead and win. And if you're Colorado here, see, now Colorado, I, I kind of almost put in the same boat as Michigan State, right? Because they, yes. they were linked, right? They both had these late coaching searches, Michigan State, because D'Antoni, uh, D'Antonio left late. And of course, Mel Tucker leaves and Colorado ends up being the latest of all the changes last year. Um, and Carl Durrell comes in there and, and again, does a pretty nice job in year one, but it's a COVID year. It's a, it's a, it's a short schedule that begins in November. You know, I found myself watching Colorado last year thinking like, you know, good for these kids. They seem to be playing hard and they got, and they, they put together a nice season, but I don't know if there's a whole lot there that's really sustainable. And, and, and over the course of a normal season, my sense was they would have gotten exposed, which they ended up doing in the bowl game. So again, I do they, have a good, good Colorado stat for it if you want it. Yeah. Hit, hit so, me. uh, Carl Durrell, um, made the highest percentage of analytically correct fourth down calls last year in the country. Ah, so I love it. Colorado was playing, like they're just not making bad, inefficient decisions as far as when to punt. And so that can actually kind of cover up some talent deficiencies if you're consistently, it's kind of like playing blackjack, right? You can sit at the table. If you're not card counting, you're going to lose. But if you don't do really dumb stuff, you can sit at the table uh, for a little bit longer before you go broke. And maybe to a now, I, I was watching that game as I was covering Iowa Iowa State last week. So needless to say, I was kind of like had one eye on the Colorado Texas A and M game, um, and was more interested in why can't Texas A and M move the ball against Colorado, uh, even without the even without Haynes King. I mean, you know, frankly, if you're Texas A and M and you fancy yourself as a top five team. You got to be able to still muster up more than ten points against Colorado. But again, game, uh, pretty good linebackers at Colorado. Um, play physical, play hard. I like the idea of like, let, yeah, let's see how they do against a Minnesota team that that shows that that really should be better, right? The timeline suggests that Minnesota is in is in a in a in a, in a year where they should be a fully developed program. Um, if you're Minnesota, if you are a fully developed program, you should really beat Colorado. So I, I am interested in this game. Why do you think Colorado, what sort of Colorado's path to victory? Like, do you think Colorado actually has a chance to win this game? I shouldn't say have a chance. You, do you think Colorado has a good shot to win this game? I mean, Colorado's favorite. 
right? I didn't even so, realize that. I would have yeah, assumed like, that would have been uh, Minnesota, you know, minus two, minus three. Well, let me look here. Uh, yeah, uh, so it's it's actually uh, Colorado minus two. So I- interesting there. Um, Colorado they, defensively, they they've played fairly well so far. You know, Minnesota defensively has not. I think they just figure out like Colorado has a good OC, I think, in, in, in Darren Shiverini, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe they think they'll just find ways uh, for them to score. I, I'm not I'm not betting that one I, either way. If you gave me like plus three and a half on either side, I'd probably take it because I feel it's sort of coin flippy. Uh, but it's just going to be a fun matchup to watch. Okay, so we already covered my number two, Auburn at Penn State. So we'll move on and go to your number, your number one. All right. So uh, my number one of the weekend is actually Cincinnati, Indiana. Oh, perfect, because that's my number one too. So let's get okay. into this. We did um, not plan that, by the way. <laughs> so th- this open plus four uh, all year i've i've taken a bunch of flack from indiana fans for saying like this indiana team is not that great and, and i'm going to be fading this indiana team and i took mm-hmm. under on their win total and all that stuff and then i turned around and bet indiana in this game plus four when it came out oh um, did you okay because like because i've been sort of on the uh on the i'm skeptical of indiana bandwagon too i i've, I've built up a little bit of a of a twitter uh, uh following on that <laughs> i think indiana fans have finally have scoped me out uh, and felt a little bit redeemed, though I'm not necessarily rooting against Indiana when they when they fell flat against Iowa. What 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 has turned you around on that? So I, I don't think Indiana's defense is bad. Uh, I think Tom Allen is a good head coach, and I'm just not fully sold on Cincinnati's offense. That to me, uh, some of their offensive line issues don't look to be all that fixed. I know they lost James Hudson to the NFL, which is a, a big loss. And even though I think Cincinnati is a good a developmental program as far as you know, identifying talent, that sort of thing. Ultimately, it's hard to replace NFL offensive linemen at a G5 program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think this is going to be quite the mismatch on the lines of scrimmage uh, that the Iowa game was for Indiana. And I, I think you know Indiana at home will be, will be game and put up a good effort here. Yeah, and I, well, I like Cincinnati. Obviously, I think they have the better quarterback. You know, Penix is a game player and a tough player. But he's kind of inefficient. You know yeah, I mean? he's like, not an efficient yeah. passer. And, I, and again, I think you know, I think his injury last year pulled him off the field uh, right after some of his better games, and I think it sort of left people with an impression that he might have had a little higher ceiling than he was. Now, Ritter is not the most efficient player either, but I also think he's a higher ceiling player who has the you know he's he's sort of like a you know just a better version. Um, he is a, a truly, you know, he's a he's a really good runner. He's got a really good arm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think in that case, you know, you're you're sort of taking the better quarterback um, at minus four, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my guess is it's going to be a pretty darn close game. And again, it also sets up as this: it's the first of these two in a row that there's a bye week in between for Cincinnati, where all of a sudden, you know, is Cincinnati. Listen, Cincinnati's probably not going to make the playoff. Uh, realistically, this system is not necessarily going to give Cincinnati the benefit of the doubt. But if there is a path for them to be legitimately in the conversation, the idea of beating a pretty good Indiana team and then beating a pretty good Notre Dame team, that was the path. Now, of course, part of the problem with that is how good is Indiana now and how good is Notre Dame? I mean, uh, you know, in some ways it's weird, like Indiana might, uh, excuse me, Cincinnati could suffer from Indiana and Notre Dame not being as good as we thought they were. I, I think that's exactly right. I, I actually I had a fun show bet with uh, my co-host on Cover 3 Podcast, Tom Fernelli, 
And he gave me a hundred to one on Cincinnati making the playoffs. Like I, I got to take that a hundred to um, one. That's yeah. right. I was like, I mean, what's the true price on that? Probably eighty to one. But so like a hundred one is value. I'll, I'll take it for the show bet. And Tom's like, I would give you a million to one because they're just never going to make the playoff in this current setup. Like it's it's not a thing that can happen uh, according to you know his belief, obviously. But to me, there was a path if Notre Dame and Indiana had come out and looked great, and then Cincinnati beat them both. Uh, but now they don't look great. So. Yeah, uh, I, Cincinnati will not be making the playoff. So, um, what is your um, what is your read on Cincinnati? I'll, I'll ask you this again. We, we kind of got into the USC stuff uh, earlier in the show with Bruce Feldman, but let me get, give me give me your read on the idea of Fickle at, at USC. It's interesting. Um, I think Fickle's a, a really good football coach. He's a good recruiter. He's a good developer of talent. They believe in being physical along long lines of scrimmage, which is something I think has plagued USC uh, recently. And I, I sometimes I think USC maybe is, is – we talk about this culture at Texas with, with soft and whatnot. Tom Herman tried to fix that by going a lot of contact in practice, and that didn't really work either. But I think Fickle you know, he could work there. Is he, is he too Midwestern? Hmm. I guess would be a hang-up I would have, but – I just think you need to hire a good football coach and not try to hire somebody who's previously connected to USC. I mean, consider fit. Certainly, like that, that's why I don't really buy the Matt Campbell idea there, uh, personally. But maybe Fickle is, uh, is is versatile enough to do it. Give me uh, before I let you roll, and I lo- again uh, liked your list. Let me let me run it down one more time here, or and I, and I think I got them all. So. Uh, I may have to ask you to fill in the blanks here. So Maryland at in, at Illinois was number five for you. Oklahoma State at Boise was number four. Um, I believe it was Auburn, Penn State at number two. Um, or excuse me, at number three. At number two was Minnesota at Colorado. Yep. And at number one is Cincinnati Indiana. at Indiana. Again, very good list. My list went um, five, Virginia at UNC, four, Bama at Florida, three, Michigan State at Miami, two, Auburn at Penn State, and number one, UC at IU. All right, give me a couple bets this week. Who'd you get in right. early on? Because I know that's that's your thing. If you if you don't follow Bud closely, A, you should. Uh, but if you do not, one of Bud's things is early in the week. Get them early, get them before these lines change and people start figuring out, oh, wait a second, that's a little too high, that's a little too low, who's hurt, who's not. So who'd you get in early on, if if anybody, this week? Yeah, so if if you're not a pro better, if you're not somebody who needs to bet thousands of dollars on a game, there's no real reason not to be popping these lines early in the week when they're a little bit looser. Because what people don't realize is the limits go up later and uh, then the market has more influence and uh, is a little bit tighter. So like to hit it when it's loose here. Uh, so I went ahead and played the over 56 for Bama, Florida. Uh, that's moved a little bit. I did lay the four and a half with Penn State hosting Auburn. Uh, I wouldn't lay that at, at six and a half, seven. But I think four and a half is some value. Uh, Cincinnati, or excuse me, Indiana plus four, and I played the under 54 and a half there. Uh, what else did I take here? Uh, Michigan State plus seven and a half at Miami and over 53 and a half. Michigan State is kind of a sneaky uh, up-tempo team this year. So uh, they're not playing that old Michigan State slow as heck uh, type deal. And then I also laid the uh, the Stanford minus 10 and a half at Vanderbilt following the quarterback change to Tanner McKee. Very nice. All right. So Bud Elliott, you can find him. Oh, well, you know what? Let me, I'll let you give your resume out there, Bud. Where can they find you? 
Sure, guys. Follow me on Twitter at BudElliot3. I, I tweet out all, all the links to stuff I write and, uh, of course, on the Cover 3 podcast uh, and on Nolcast as well. Yeah, Bud does a great job for 247 Sports. Again, recruiting, betting, uh, what's happening now, what's in the pipeline. Bud does a great job. Hey, Bud, man, I really appreciate you coming on and filling us in. I love the insight on the Knowles, and uh, good luck with the rest of the season, my friend. All right. Be well, man. And now, three and out. First down. Bud and I discussed a total of eight games as we ran down the weekend schedule of most intriguing. Neither of us mentioned Nebraska at Oklahoma. I mean, you can't blame us. The Sooners are 22.5-point favorites at home, last time I checked. Of course, this kind of makes me sad because I'm old and nostalgic, and I want this rivalry of my youth to be interesting. I have tried to refrain from piling on Nebraska early this season because what's the point? Things are bad, and I don't necessarily see a reason to believe they will get substantially better. I will say this. I'm already gearing up to push back against the theory that if Scott Frost can't turn around Nebraska, then who can? Frost might pull together, he's got time, and earn himself another season. But if he doesn't, I believe that's more on him than Nebraska. You will never get me to believe a program with those resources and that much support should be regularly losing games to Illinois, Northwestern, and Purdue. Nebraska will probably never be what it was in the 1990s. We say this all the time, but the current state of the Huskers is not about changes in the landscape. It's about a coach who has not met even the most reasonable expectations for his performance. There is still time for Frost to turn around, as I said, and become the rising star that Nebraska thought they hired, but I'm skeptical. Second down, my friend Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated has been all over this story. We're heading toward the NCAA passing some temporary measures to address a clogged recruiting pipeline and overstuffed transfer portal next year. What Ross has reported, and I have been told it similarly, is teams will be permitted to sign more than 25 players for the 2020 recruiting cycle. 25 is the most you can normally sign no matter what. Uh, You're allowed 85 total scholarship players on a roster, but you can't sign any more than 25 in a year for the most part. There are some minor exceptions there. However, teams will be able to go over that 25 number if they are replacing transfers. Now, it won't be unlimited. It will not be a one-for-one situation where you can replace every player who transfers out. The concern there is coaches would be motivated to run off players and use this as a way to turn over their rosters, or at least run off players more than they commonly do now. The temporary solution is teams will have the ability to replace five to seven transfers uh, with either transfers or high school players. Ross was reporting most recently it's seven. I have heard that number two, but I also know these things often get tweaked right at the finish line, so I wouldn't be surprised if the number was to go up or down. But seven, give or take, is likely where the Football Oversight Committee will land with its recommendation. The hope is the tweak will encourage schools to sign a full complement of high school players, 
even though the extra COVID year of eligibility give back has the potential to clog that pipeline. There may be fewer players leaving as they take advantage of the extra COVID year of eligibility. It will also help teams avoid being depleted by a mass exodus of transfers. I know a lot of coaches are worried about that. Suddenly falling way below the scholarship limits because 15 guys transferred out, whether because of you know something going on within the program or maybe because of a coaching change. A new coach comes in and he loses a whole bunch of players to transfer. You sign 25, but you're still, let's say, in the 60s as far as your total number. So the idea is this could be able to help prevent that. It's a move that needed to be made, less so to help the coaches and more so to provide opportunities for athletes both in high school and in the portal with more opportunities. Though I expect to still hear complaints from coaches that it wasn't enough. Third down, my way off the radar game this week, and we went pretty far off the radar with Bud, is number 16 Coastal Carolina at Buffalo. Now, if Lance Leipold, who is now at Kansas, and the players who transferred to Kansas to play for him were still at Buffalo, this would likely be an even tougher test for the Chanticleers. This had potential, in fact, to be the toughest non-conference game on the Chant schedule. But Leipold is gone, and Mo Linguist came from Michigan to replace him deep into the spring. How good are the Bulls? I don't know. A huge win over Wagner and a 28-3 loss at Nebraska doesn't look like much to get excited about. I bring this up because as much as I think it will be tough for Coastal to repeat the magic it captured last year, its schedule is really accommodating other than road trips in the Sun Belt to App State and Arkansas State. They're back-to-back games, but they're separated by a bye. I'd be tempted to call for an upset in this game if it was, I don't know, a month or so later in the season and maybe on a Friday night in Buffalo. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. If you have any questions that you'd like me or my guest to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you on all topics, college football, serious or silly. And the coaching carousel is open, so fire away with those. Those always make for meaty conversation topics during the season. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.